Our passage is verse 24 to 29. We're going to read that together in just a minute. There is an outline in your bulletin. You can track along with the message. This morning's a unique Sunday. In some sense, it's like any other Sunday. We're going to do what we do on Sunday mornings. We have sung and we've prayed. And we're going to sit now under the authority of God's word. Regardless of whether or not we were going to have an ordination this morning, this is the passage we would have come to, and this is the passage that we would have studied, and we would have listened to it and tried to sit under its authority. We did pick this morning specifically because knowing that we would be at this point in the book of Colossians, this is a good spot in the book of Colossians to think about an ordination. And so this morning we are uh, completing the process of ordaining Jake Graves as an elder at our church. Uh, some of you know Jake very well. Some of you don't know him very well. Some of you have been at our church long before Jake was here. Some of you have come to Emmanuel since Jake has been here. And so I thought I would just sort of recap the process of how the Lord has brought Jake to us in this process of ordaining an elder at our church. Uh, back in 2019, Jake came to Emmanuel and he came initially as a summer youth intern and an interim worship leader. And he did a great job helping Hunter with our youth over the summer. He did a great job leading us in worship over the summer. And at the end of that summer, our elders, uh, our leadership said to Jake, we want you to stay. Uh, we're glad the Lord has brought you here. Would you stay on and be our full-time worship leader and college minister? And so Jake did that. He helped coordinate BSM ministry. He worked with our college kids and he led us in worship on Sunday mornings. Earlier this year, uh, our youth pastor, Hunter, announced that his family was moving to San Antonio. And on the heels of that announcement, Jake came into my office one day and he sat down and he said, hey, I would really love to be involved in youth ministry. I know I'm doing worship. I know I'm doing college, but I really have a heart uh, for youth ministry, and I would love to serve in that area if possible. And so what we asked Jake to do since Hunter was leaving is uh, serve as our interim youth minister and continue leading us in worship on Sunday mornings, and he's done that over the last year. And at the end of the summer, we sat down with Jake and we evaluated how the, the year had gone, and Jake was eager to continue in that role, and we were eager for him to continue in that role, so we removed the interim label, and we said, now you are our, our youth minister, and we've asked Jake to continue leading us in worship on Sunday mornings, but we know that long-term, that's not a good solution. That's too much to ask one guy uh, to do in terms of leadership and planning and working with volunteers and all that sort of stuff. So for now, Jake uh, is our youth minister. After this morning, we will refer to him as our youth pastor, uh, sort of the nomenclature we use. And he'll continue to lead us in worship on Sunday mornings, even as we're in the process of figuring out what that needs to look like going forward long term. Now, all of that has happened in the middle of covid and so, I don't know if you've heard of COVID, but there's a thing called COVID, and it's been around for a while now. And uh, anyways, it's been a, a really strange last 18 months, couple of years, and uh, Jake has jumped into life at Emmanuel in the midst of all that. And we figured out all sorts of crazy things on the fly and uh, figured out who was going to do what and how we were going to do it all along the way together. And uh, during that time... All through that process, Jake has been meeting with our elders. So in coming to Emmanuel, he had never been ordained. And so we began that process after he came on full-time. And at our church, that begins with one year 
of meeting with our elders at our uh, monthly, sometimes twice a month, but usually monthly elders meetings. And so he's been in that process. Now, it's been longer than a year, and that is not because Jake's a slow learner or anything like that. It's just because it's been a crazy year. And so we've had a lot of plans where, hey, we're going to talk about this uh, this week at elders meeting, and we had other stuff that we had to talk about, and we didn't get to everything that we needed to get to in uh, the most timely manner. So we've finished that process. And at the tail end of that year, give or take, uh, our elders take time to be very intentional in talking with Jake in this instance or any other elder candidate. The first thing that we talk to them about is their salvation experience. Now we had talked with Jake about that when we brought him on as a youth intern and a worship leader, but we went through that again, and we talked about that. We want to hear your salvation experience. We want to hear how you experience God's grace in your life, and not just what happened in the past, but we want to hear what God is doing in your life now. We want to hear about your call to ministry and why it is that you think the Lord has called you to serve him in the ways that you're, you're seeking to serve him. So we went through all of those discussions. We spent time talking about character, which is something that we're going to touch on this morning in just a moment. We've talked with Jake about the character requirements for a pastor or an elder. We've talked with Jake about his family life, about Jake's role as a husband and Jake's role as a father. Both of those things connected in the New Testament with the role of a pastor elder. And so we've talked with him about all of that. And then we went through the doctrinal stuff, all the doctrinal questions that you would ask somebody who you are ordaining uh, as an elder. And Jake did a great job talking with our elders through all of those things. At the end of that process, our elders uh, enthusiastically presented him to you, the congregation. It is not a decision just for our elders to make, but it's a decision for our church family to make. And so we gave you opportunities to say, hey, we think this guy's crazy or whatever. Nobody told me during that window of time that Jake had not seen the movie Tombstone. I don't know how that didn't come up, but it didn't come up. And so we've dealt with that issue this week, and we'll deal with it going forward. But in all honesty, we presented Jake to you very uh, wholeheartedly, and it was a unanimous vote from our church to say, yes, we want to set Jake aside and call him to this role as elder at Emmanuel. So that means we're here this morning and we're completing that process and we're going to do two things at once. As a church family, we are going to listen to and respond to what the Lord says in uh, Colossians 1, 24 to 29. And we're gonna think about the application for all of us who follow Jesus this morning. But specifically, we're also going to think about the Lord's call on Jake's life and think about what this passage has to say to Jake. As a church, it's important that we do this together. It's important that I don't just sit down with Jake in my office and say, okay, here's the deal. This is what we're going to need you to do. It's important that Jake's church, our church, have a solid understanding of what the expectation is for Jake as a pastor, as an elder in our church. It's important that Jake have that understanding. And as we're going to talk about this morning, it's important that we all understand what the Lord has called us to do as followers of Jesus Christ. So we'll start with this. Colossians is a book about the supremacy of Jesus Christ. We're going to talk about that every week. We saw it last week in verse 18. It's the word preeminent in the English standard version. 
Some translations use the word supreme. That's the NIV. Many translations who are trying to get at the sense of this word say that he's first place. You could say that he's top dog. He's preeminent. He's supreme. He's the head. In all of the cosmos, in his church, Jesus is supreme, which is a really good reminder as we think about the role of elder or pastor in a congregation. I am not supreme in this church. Jake is not supreme in this church. Our elders as a group are not supreme in this church. Our deacons or our Sunday school teachers, as important as all of those roles are, and they are all important, none of us are supreme. None of us as individuals are supreme with our own preferences and our own likes and our own dislikes. Jesus Christ is supreme. If Colossians reminds us of anything it reminds us of that truth. He is supreme in all the universe, and he is supreme amongst his people, amongst the church. Now, last week, we looked at Colossians 1, 21, 22, and 23. If you have your Bible open, you can look at verse 23. In verse 23, Paul referred to himself as a minister of the gospel. In our passage, verse 24 to 29, Paul begins to explain what that means. And in a lot of ways, verse 23 through, let's say, chapter 2, verse 5, is a transition point in the book. The first part of Colossians, Colossians 1.1 up through 1.22, all of the pronouns, the dominant pronoun is we. All the action surrounds we. And that we is identified in verse 1. It's Paul and Timothy. And he's saying, we are thankful for you. We are praying for you. We do this when we're we're reminded of you. But then in verse 23, and in our passage, and through about chapter 2, verse 5, the pronouns shift from we to I. It becomes autobiographical. Paul starts to talk about himself and his relationship with this church in Colossae and the things that God has called him to. So it starts off with we, and then it moves to I, and then after you get past chapter 2, verse 5, chapter 2, verse 6, going through the end, the dominant pronoun becomes you. And Paul is talking more directly, not about himself, not about himself and Timothy, but he's talking directly to the church in Colossae. And so we're in this transitional spot of the book. One note of clarification before we get to the big idea. This is something we will circle back to at least twice before we get out of Colossians. When Paul used the word mystery, he was talking about a part of God's redemptive plan that had been fully revealed in the life, death, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And I gave you all kinds of verses. You can look those up on your own if you're so inclined. I bring this up to make the obvious point that this is not how we typically use the word mystery. When you and I talk about something being a mystery, we're talking about maybe somebody does something that we don't understand and we can't explain. And somebody says, well, why did they do that? You say, I don't know. It's a mystery to me. I don't understand. Or maybe you're working on some sort of work issue, something that you just can't get your mind around and you say, you know, I I don't know what to do here. This whole thing is a, a mystery to me. I just don't understand it. Maybe you're talking about a genre of movie or TV show. You say, hey, we went and watched a new movie. It was a a mystery, a suspense movie, a thriller movie. Or you're talking, hey, I watched a a Dateline or a 48 Hours or a whatever, and it was a murder mystery where you're trying to figure out what happened. That's not at all 
what Paul means when Paul starts to use the word mystery. Paul's talking about something that is part of God's redemptive plan. That's a plan that God hatched, you might say, in eternity past. And a plan that began to unfold throughout the ages. And it's a plan that culminated in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And so sometimes in his letter, letters, Paul talks about a mystery. And what he means is, in the past, these things weren't entirely clear to God's people. They were sort of walking by faith, not by sight. A Messiah was coming, but they really didn't know who or when or how. But in the life, in the death, in the resurrection of Jesus, God has revealed very clearly important pieces of his redemptive plan for his people. Now, we would also say there's a sense in which there is still more mystery out there when we think about the return of Jesus Christ, Jesus coming back for his church. Many of those events, much of that timeline is shrouded in some measure of biblical mystery where we look at it on this side and we say, we think we see what's going to happen, but we will know clearly when Christ returns. Paul's talking about a mystery in that sense of the term. Now, here's the big idea of our passage. Very important. Every Christian and every minister of the gospel is called to make God's word fully known. And it's important that we understand, yes, that's the responsibility of a minister of the gospel, and we're thinking about that as we ordain Jake. It's also important that we understand that is the responsibility of anyone and everyone who follows Jesus Christ. If you are a follower of Jesus Christ, we've talked about this recently, you've been reconciled to him. And as somebody who's been reconciled to Jesus, you are now an ambassador of him, for him. You represent him to the world. And the calling of every Christian, especially the calling of a minister of the gospel, is to make God's word fully known. So look with me in your copy of the scriptures. Let's read Colossians 1, 24 to 29. Scripture says this, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is the church, of which I became a minister, according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known. The mystery, hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for the morning uh, we have to worship, to be together. Lord, we're thankful for uh, new members this morning. We're thankful for uh, baptism this morning. We're thankful for Jake and his family this morning. And Lord, we just stop to give you thanks for uh, Jake and his family. Thanks that you have brought them to Emmanuel. And Father, thanks for the opportunity 
that we can recognize your calling on his life this morning and we can set him apart for the task of serving our church in a special way. Lord, help us all to be mindful of what we should expect from an elder, from a pastor. But Lord, let us all be mindful that the things that you've called us to this morning do not only apply to those who earn a living uh, vocationally preaching the gospel, but they apply to everyone who claims the name of Jesus Christ and has the hope of glory of eternal life. So Lord, give us eyes to see the truth this morning. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. If you watch the news much and you listen to an economist, many economists are saying something similar right now. They're saying that the United States is in the midst of a unique uh, experience as a nation. And there's a couple of different terms that economists have come up with. You can pick your term. Some have called it the great resignation that we are in the middle of. Some have called it the big quit. And so what economists are telling us is that there are all sorts of people right now quitting their jobs. And it's the job of the economist to go on the news and to say to people, well, this is what's happening in the economy. All these people are quitting their jobs. And then to help us make sense of that. Why are they doing that? Are they looking for a better job? Or are they quitting because of some sort of mandate or requirement? Are they quitting because they think they can get paid more somewhere else? Are they quitting because they wanted to quit a year ago and they didn't do it during the COVID crisis? So now they're doing it. There's all sorts of theories about why they're quitting their jobs, but there are record numbers of Americans quitting their jobs. It's not true in all industries equally. It's not true in all parts of the country equally, but it is true across the nation that lots of people are quitting. So I don't speak as any sort of economist who has any sort of theory on this, but I will speak as a pastor who lives in the church world, and I will tell you that what's happening in the economy broadly is happening in churches all across the United States of America. Pastors and staff members are quitting And there's lots of different reasons for that, none of which I really want to go into this morning. I'm just making the point to you that there are a lot of churches right now who have staff members, pastors, employees who are resigning. They're quitting for different reasons, which means there are a lot of churches right now that are looking for pastors. They're looking to hire staff members. They're trying to fill open positions. And one of the most fascinating things to me in my life living in the little church world bubble that I live in is reading the job descriptions that churches come up with for pastors. There are some buzzwords that just show up over and over and over and over again. Let me give you a sampling of what you might find if you get online and look for a pastor job description. We want a high capacity leader. We want a visionary trailblazer. This person needs to be a skilled administrator. We want them to be a dynamic speaker, a compassionate counselor, a passionate soul winner, a community leader. And you read these job descriptions, stuff like this, and you think, wow, that must be a big church, right? No, this is the kind of job description for a church that runs 10 people and pays a pastor 50 bucks a week. They say that we want all of this stuff in the guy that's going to be our pastor or going to be our part-time youth pastor or whatever the position may be. All these things. Now, you look at a list like that. I don't know that there's anything inherently wicked with anything on that list. I don't know that you would want to flip that list on its head and look for the opposite of all those things. 
well, we're looking for somebody who has a very low capacity of work and we're looking for somebody that doesn't care about lost people and somebody that doesn't want to be involved in their community and we want them to be the worst public speaker. Like you wouldn't flip that list on its head, but this is what's interesting about that list. It's not New Testament stuff. And that's not to say that it's not important stuff in the day-in, day-out work of ministry and and work in a church and the the responsibilities of a pastor. I'm just telling you, it's not New Testament stuff when the New Testament tells you what you ought to look for in a pastor. The first two things that the New Testament tells you when you're thinking about the job qualifications or the requirements of a pastor or elder are this. Number one, godly character. That comes first before any speaking skills, before any personality, before any visionary ideas, before any of that stuff, godly character. And churches today experience train wreck after train wreck after train wreck after train wreck because they prioritize all the stuff on that list and they forget about the godly character part. They assume that because somebody wants to be a pastor, they have godly character. It's not always the case. Churches in the United States get burned because of that all the time. So number one is godly character. Number two is a knowledge of the word of God and the ability to teach the word of God. All that other stuff on the list is great, but those are the two emphases of the New Testament when you think about the role and the responsibility of a pastor or an elder. Does he have godly character and does he know the word and can he teach the word of God? Those things come first. So when our elders have been meeting with Jake and we've been talking with Jake and we've been listening to Jake, those are the primary things that we're looking for. And I'm not telling you all the other stuff's unimportant. Jake works hard. He is a high capacity employee. But that's not the most important thing about considering Jake for this office of elder. The primary questions are, does his character line up with what scripture calls it to line up with? And number two, does he know the word of God and does he have the ability to teach the word of God, whether he's doing that through song or whether he's doing that standing up in front of college students or whether he's doing that standing up in front of youth or whether he's doing it from this platform, which he's going to do in a couple of weeks. Can he teach the word of God? Can he preach the word of God? Our conclusion as a group of elders has been yes, he can. His character matches what the New Testament describes. He's not perfect. None of our pastors are. That's not the standard for a pastor or an elder. The question is, does his character consistently line up with what the New Testament sets forth? And our conclusion has been yes, it does. And we see gifts in him that relate to the teaching and the proclamation of God's word. That second piece, teaching God's word, is what I want to specifically think about as we look at Colossians 1. It's something that applies to all of God's people in some way, shape, or form, but it's something that uniquely applies to what we're asking Jake to do this morning. And it's captured in the phrase in verse 25 that Paul says he's called to make the word of God fully known. To make the word of God fully known. You understand the job of a pastor or an elder is not to stand up and say exactly what your great Grammy always said about the Bible. It's not to tickle ears. It's not to say what society or culture want to hear from a pastor or an elder. It is to preach the word of God and to make God's word fully known. At points, your grandmammy may be wrong. 
And at many points, our culture and our society are certainly wrong in what they expect God's people to say. But the task of God's people, the responsibility of any Christian, especially a minister of the gospel, is to make God's word fully known. So the question is, how do we do that? How do we make God's word fully known? Let's walk through what Paul says in Colossians 1, 24 to 29. The first thing Paul would tell us as Christians and as we think about Jake as an elder candidate, a minister of the gospel, is that we should expect suffering. Expect suffering. It's not exactly starting on a positive note, but it's an honest note. Look what Paul says in verse 24. He says, I rejoice I rejoice, I worship with joy, I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body that is the church. He says two shocking things in that one verse. The first is that he rejoices in suffering. We live in a culture that despises suffering that runs from suffering, that does anything and everything within our power to get away from suffering. Paul didn't love suffering, but he looked at suffering through a redemptive lens. And he said, I rejoice in my suffering because he understood that his suffering, Paul's suffering, you ready for the second shocking thing he says? Is filling up what is lacking in Christ's affliction. Now, I'll be honest with you. That does not sound like a good Sunday school answer. I don't suggest in Sunday school you raise your hand and you say, you know what? I know Jesus was afflicted, but there's just something lacking in what Jesus did on the cross. Even saying it out loud, you think, wait a minute, wait a minute. That That can't be right. What in the world does Paul mean he's filling up what's lacking in Christ's affliction? Does he mean that Jesus suffered for 99.99% of your sins and he left the last 0.01% to Paul or your pastor? I sure hope not. Absolutely no, that's not what Paul's saying. We've talked about this in recent weeks. You can see it throughout Paul's letters. Paul did not believe anything was inherently lacking in what Christ accomplished on the cross. He accomplished everything that needed to be accomplished for the salvation of his people. But what he's talking about here when he says something is lacking is what we talked about previously in Colossians when we said the gospel message must be proclaimed and it must be believed. Somebody's got to open their mouth and tell people about what Jesus did whether that's the person that lives across the street from you or whether that's the person you meet on a mission trip to Kenya around the world. Somebody's got to open up their mouth and talk about it. Somebody has to respond to the gospel message in repentance and faith. What is lacking is not that Jesus didn't suffer enough to pay the penalty for the sins of his people. What's lacking is that in Paul's day and still today, there are many people. Today, we would say billions with a B many people who have never heard the good news of the gospel. And what Paul understood is that his suffering was related to those people hearing about Jesus. There's a connection there. What's true in Paul's life is true in your life. God has a redemptive aim in the suffering of his people. 
And when you suffer, it is not for suffering's sake. It's not because God is just trying to punish people. It's that God uses, many times in his providence, he uses the suffering of his people to give them opportunity to share the good news about Jesus Christ with those who have never heard it, to fill up what's lacking. People haven't heard. If they haven't heard, they can't believe. How do we make that connection? Many times in the providence of God, not always, but many times it's the suffering of his people, which means when you suffer, you better not waste it. Don't waste it. I'm not telling you to sit and wallow in your suffering and to enjoy it. It's not what I'm saying. But I'm saying that when you suffer, you have a unique opportunity. I can stand on this platform and I can tell sinful people that God is great and he is good and he is worthy to be praised. I can say it Sunday after Sunday after Sunday after Sunday. And for many people, it's just preacher talk. But when you, in the midst of suffering, tell those same people God is great and he's good and he's kind and he is worthy to be trusted and followed and praised, it's entirely different. It's God using your suffering for a redemptive end. Paul understood how that worked. He rejoiced in his suffering. As a Christian, as a minister of the gospel, expect suffering. Our good friend Carl Henry says it like this, the gospel is only good news if it gets there in time. And many times God's aim is to use your suffering to get it to somebody, to get the gospel to somebody in time. Why does God do it that way? I have no idea, but that's the way he chooses. He used the suffering of his son to secure our salvation, and many times he uses the suffering of his people to share that message of salvation with those who need to hear it. So number one, expect suffering. Number two, how does a Christian, how does a minister of the gospel make the word of God fully known? Being a steward. A steward. Paul talks about this in verse 25. He says, He became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you, to Paul, for the Colossians, to make the word of God fully known. The Lord entrusted something to Paul. He entrusted the gospel to him. He entrusted opportunities to him. He entrusted the freedom to travel and plant churches to him. He entrusted money through the people in these churches that would send Paul on these mission trips. It was a stewardship. None of it belonged to Paul. He wasn't the owner of any of it. He was the manager of what God had entrusted him. Christian, church member at Emmanuel. This is not our building. We're managing it. We're using it. The opportunities that God gives to our church, the money that the Lord provides for our church, the opportunities, all the things that God pours into the life of Emmanuel Baptist Church, they're not ours. They're things that we're called to manage and to steward. And when you think about stewardship, you're thinking about responsibility, you're thinking about faithfulness, and you're thinking about sooner or later I'll give an account for how I use these things that have been entrusted to me. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, the gospel has been entrusted to you. Be a good steward of what the Lord has put in front of you. For Jake, we're calling him to be an elder. There are opportunities that the Lord is entrusting to you, and you've got to be found faithful. Thirdly, how does a Christian, how does a minister of the gospel make the word of God fully known? By serving the saints. Verse 24 
He says he's suffering, and he's rejoicing in his suffering because he knows that it is for the sake of his body, Christ's body, that is, it's for the church. Down in verse 26, he says, this mystery of the gospel has been revealed to his saints. Everything that Paul's talking about in this passage is oriented towards Christian people. It's very popular today for churches to talk about we exist as a church for lost people, to reach the lost, to take the message of the gospel to the lost. That's good. We want to take the message of the gospel to the lost. It's not the foundational reason we exist as a church. I share this in every plugged-in new members class that we've ever had here at Emmanuel. We exist as a church, number one, for the glory of God. If you unhitch God's glory from reaching lost people, you will end up doing all sorts of crazy things to reach lost people that don't glorify God. Number one, foundational level, we exist for God's glory. Number two, our mission as a church is to make disciples, to shepherd the flock as under shepherds, to help people grow in relationship to the, to the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul understood his stewardship was for Christ's body. That is the church. It was for the saints. We talked about that in our very first sermon in Colossians. The saints are Christians. They're not elite Christians like Navy SEAL Christians. They're Christians. And Paul understood his ministry was directed towards the church and towards believers to help them grow, to help them understand the gospel, to help them follow faithfully after Jesus Christ. Yes, we care about those who are lost, but not to the exclusion of shepherding God's people here. I see people all the time, they share memes on social media, pictures, and they say something like, don't go to church, be the church. Do you know how you be the church? Well, first you go to church. Step one, go to church. You care about the church, you serve the church. This is the role of a pastor elder. Paul lays it out in Ephesians. He says, pastors, shepherds, teachers, equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ so that the church of God may not be tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine. Yes, we care about those who are lost. Yes, we want to reach those people. But we care about God's people. And we make disciples of God's people. We serve the saints. That's the ministry of every Christian. That's the ministry of every pastor. How does a Christian, how does a minister of the gospel make the word of God fully known? Fourthly, proclaiming salvation. Proclaiming salvation. Look at the wording in verse 27 to 28. It talks about Christ being the hope of glory. Christ is this mystery that we proclaim and when you know Christ, you have the hope of glory, you have the hope of eternal life. He says, him we proclaim, it's Jesus. We proclaim Jesus. We talk to people about the good news of Jesus. We warn everyone, we teach everyone, and the aim in all of it is not just to get people into heaven someday. The aim of it is to present people mature in Christ. Too often in the Bible Belt, we sell that short. We say, we're going to proclaim salvation. We're going to share the gospel so that people will get saved. That's a good beginning. 
But the end game is not just to get people to make a decision and then hope you see them in heaven someday. The end game is to present people mature in Christ. That's what it means to proclaim salvation for every Christian and especially for a minister of the gospel. Talk to people about God's holiness. Tell them about their sin. Call them to repent and believe the good news about Jesus Christ and then labor to present them mature in Christ. Brings us to the last truth. How do we make the word of God fully known? Enduring through struggle. Enduring through struggle. Verse 29, Paul says, For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. I read just this week about a Scottish preacher in the 19th century named Alexander McLaren. He had a pair of old dirty work boots that he used to wear every day he went into his study to prepare a sermon. And he wore those old dirty work boots into his study to remind himself, I'm toiling. I'm struggling. I've got to work hard at what God has called me to do. This is not just an easy desk job, but the call of the Christian, and especially the call of a minister of the gospel, is to toil and to struggle and to work hard. So hard, so great is the task in front of us and a minister of the gospel. Paul says we've got to depend on his energy that he powerfully works within us. Doing these things, this is how you make the word of God fully known. You expect suffering, you be a good steward, you serve the saints, you proclaim salvation, and you endure through struggle. You know, I want to acknowledge that a couple of years ago, uh, Jake had other plans for ministry. Uh, He had plans a couple of years ago to be in the DFW area, and he was going to go with a guy named Tanner House, and they were going to plant a church there in the Dallas area, and they were excited about that, as anybody would be. But you know, and I know, sometimes plans change, and plans changed. Tanner and his family were in an adoption process, and they needed to be here. They weren't able to leave here for a time, and Tanner has ended up not only adopting, but planting a church here in Odessa, Redeemer Church. And our church has worked with them. We've let them use our building. We support them uh, with a monthly gift. We pray for them. Uh, We've prayed for Tanner on Wednesday nights. We're rooting for them, and we're glad there's another gospel-centered church. Uh, We're grateful that a guy like Tanner is pastoring here in Odessa. We're also really, 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 really glad that the graves ended up here. It's not to say that there's anything wrong with Dallas, but this is way better than Dallas. And we're glad the graves are here. We're so thankful Uh, that they are here. And we look at Jake's life and we say, God has called him to do these things, to make God's word fully known. And we're grateful that he's called him to do that here. And so on this tail end of this ordination process, here's my simple call to Jake. And if you have your Bible open, hope you still have your Bible open, you can look at Colossians 1.3. I speak for our congregation When I look at verse 3 and I say, we always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. And we look at Jake and your ministry here. We look at Desiree and your family being part of our church. And when we pray for you, we thank God for you. We're grateful that the Lord has brought you here. We're grateful for the experiences that the Lord has used in your life to make you the people that you are. And we're excited for the calling that he's placed on your life. Here's part of what we pray for Jake and Desiree. We look down at verse 9, 10, and 11. This is Paul's prayer. 
From the day we heard, the day we heard you weren't going to Dallas, but you were coming here, we've not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work, increasing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power. We just talked about that. Strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy. We give thanks because God has qualified you to share in an inheritance with the saints in light. He has delivered us and you from the domain of darkness and he's transferred us into the kingdom of his son. We have redemption in him the forgiveness of sins. We look at this passage, verse 24 to 29, and we say to you, expect suffering. That will take lots of different forms in your life. But every Christian in this room ought to expect it, and you ought to expect it, and you ought to experience it with rejoicing, knowing that God intends with a redemptive aim to fill up what's lacking in Christ's affliction through your suffering. And your suffering will give you increased opportunities to share the good news of the gospel with our people. We call you, as Paul talks about here, to be a good steward. To say that the Lord has entrusted you with the gospel. And as your church family, we look at you and Desiree and we say, God has given both of you incredible gifts. Don't waste those gifts. They're for the good of this church. They're for the good of God's people. So steward those gifts well. We say, be a a churchman. Go to church. Come to church. First way you be the church is to go and to be involved and to serve the saints, to serve the body of Christ, which is the church. We call you to proclaim salvation, just like Paul lays it out here, to call people to repent of their sin and to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and to do the hard work, the toil and the struggle, the stuff that you can't do on your own power, but the work of presenting them mature in Christ, not just we got you to pray a prayer. Not just we got you saved and I'll see you in heaven, but our job is to present these people mature in Christ. That's the call. That's all it is. Easy peasy. We see God's grace in your life. We're grateful for his giftingness. We're grateful that he's brought you here in his providence and we're excited to serve with you going forward. So Jake's gonna come up to the front. I'm gonna have him stand up here uh, at the front and I'm gonna ask our deacons and our elders if they would come up Uh, to the front as well and pray for Jake. Uh, Some of our ladies, Desiree's here this morning. If some of our ladies want to go pray for Desiree, that would be a a great thing as well. Um, Calling on Jake's life certainly has an impact on his family. And so we want to pray for Desiree. Any of our other men that want to come to the front and pray over Jake, you are more than welcome to do that. I'm going to ask these guys just to lay hands on Jake. And uh, you as Jake's church family, I'm going to ask you just to take a moment to pray for him, to pray for Desiree, to pray for their ministry here, to pray for their kiddos, uh, and to pray for our church. Uh, you can look at Colossians 1, 24 to 29 with a great model of the things that you ought to pray for. So take a moment to pray for Jake and his family, and I'll close us in prayer here in just a minute.